Okay, welcome everybody to our uh, uh, video cast of our Wednesday evening Bible class. This is uh, April the 8th. Uh, we have uh, determined to make a change this week. Originally, as we were recording the videos for Wednesday night, uh, the plan was, or the idea was, that this wouldn't be a very long-term event, but now we don't know. So, uh, so what I've decided to do, and Rich and I have discussed this, what we decided to do is uh, we're going to go back to our regular uh, Bible classes that we would be having if we were, uh, if we were still able to meet at the building, and uh, that was a chronological study, and we're going to start in the same place where we, where we ended, but for those who are not members here at Stewart, uh, unaware of the type of study we're doing, this is a chronological study of the Bible uh, in that what we're doing is we're following a timeline. Uh, there is a beginning in Genesis chapter 1, but it, you know the Bible's not recorded in chronological order, and so as you go forward in the timeline, in the way that God deals with his people and in the events that happen, and the various prophets and where they fit into uh, the times of the kings especially and and the times of the captivity, the, both the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity, and then certainly continuing on even into the intertestamental period, you have a, a timeline. And if you keep these books, uh, the prophecies, especially in their place in the chronological order, then you, you understand better what's happening. Then you understand the books better. You understand what's being said. And so, uh, like, for example, with Daniel and everything that was happening during his time, if you know, and if you keep it in its chronological order, if you know that he's taken into captivity as a young man by the Babylonians in 605 B.C., and then you know the following two uh, return attacks on uh, Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, actually, uh, ending with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, then you understand more about what's happening in the book of Daniel, and you understand more about what he's saying and the implications of that. So we try to keep everything in its uh, uh, in its timeline, in its order. And even when we get to the New Testament, that's what we do as well. But clearly, we're hoping that we're, we're in Exodus <laughs> 4 today, so we're hoping we're not still having to do this from a distance by the time we get to the New Testament. So... Uh, we're in Exodus 4. If you have your Bible, if you turn to Exodus 4, that's where we'll be in just a moment. But, but usually, if you're in my class, you know that I, I review uh, to kind of keep the chronology in our mind as we continue forward. And so I want to do that again very quickly, and then Rich and I will get into chapter 4. But you know that Israel has ended up in, uh, or the descendants of Abraham, as they are at this time. They won't be officially Israel until God gives them the law at Sinai. But the descendants of Abraham have ended up in Egypt, and the, the events that caused them to be there are uh, have to do with this famine that has occurred, a seven-year famine. And because of God's use of Joseph and his providence, uh, Joseph has been second in command in Egypt, and so he has put into plan, uh, uh, put into place a plan given by God to uh, to save these descendants of Abraham. Not only them, but everybody, and so. These people, the descendants of Abraham, end up in Egypt. But they're not slaves at this point. They're actually shepherds for the flocks and herds of Pharaoh for some time. Uh, but eventually, Jacob dies, and there were 70 that came down with Jacob, including Joseph and his family, uh, in Egypt already. But uh, eventually, Jacob dies, and then as, as the book of Genesis ends, Joseph dies as well. 
And uh, Joseph's body remains in Egypt, but it remains in some location to where it would be easy to get out of the land because Joseph repeats the promise that God had made uh, multiple occasions that he was going to visit his people and bring them out of Egypt. And so Joseph basically tells uh, his people, don't leave my body here. When God visits you and takes you out of Egypt, then... Uh, then take my body with you. Now, between Genesis and Exodus, we have quite a bit of time that passes because they're in Egypt some 400 years. Uh, and as you get in the book of Exodus, the situation has changed. Uh, they are guests in the book of Genesis and they are working for Pharaoh. But when you start the book of Exodus, uh, things have changed and now they are servants. And there is a new Pharaoh that, uh, that is now in charge and he does not acknowledge uh, the history of the nation as far as what Joseph did for that nation and saving them and making them powerful and wealthy and all of that. He doesn't acknowledge that. And so to him, these people who are the descendants of Abraham, as they have multiplied, they are becoming more of a threat. And so he puts burdens on them and makes them servants. And he tries to uh, control the population by having the, the order or the edict uh, put into place to have these males that are born killed and then we're introduced to a character, multiple characters, but one primary character is a boy that would ultimately be named Moses. And through a series of events with God's providence and the plan of uh, his family, uh, Moses is saved from this edict to have the, uh, the males all killed. Uh, and he's put in the basket, you know the account. He's put in the basket in the river and Pharaoh's daughter pulls him out, calls him Moses because she's drawn him out of the water. And uh, again, through God's providence, you have Moses' own mother able to uh, uh, nurse him and teach him and prepare him, uh, even to the point where we don't know how long she's doing this, but where he as an adult knows what this plan is. Because all of a sudden in the account, you have an event occur when he's at 40 years old and he goes out to the Israelites or the descendants of Abraham to, to check on them and what he believes. Stephen tells us this in Acts chapter 7 as he's preaching this sermon about what had happened in Israel's history. Uh, what he believes is that it's time for him to lead this, uh, this group of people out of their captivity. He believes it's time to lead them to freedom, but it's not time. They're not ready yet. And so uh, an event occurs where he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave and he attacks and kills the Egyptian. And when he comes out the next day, he's actually accused by the Israelites. So he doesn't fit now with the Israelites, nor does he fit with the Egyptians. And he's afraid for his life now because of Pharaoh. So he has to flee into the wilderness where he has two sons that are born while he's in the wilderness. He has uh, Zipporah, his wife, who is the daughter of Jethro, who is the priest of Midian. And so for the next 40 years, he's in this wilderness and at least a portion of that time, his work is to tend the flocks of uh, Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, uh, as we get into Exodus chapter 3, uh, which directly connects with the account of Exodus chapter 4, you have the event that you know most everybody has at least heard of, uh, and that's the account of the burning bush where Moses is on the top of the mountain, which, by the way, is Mount Sinai, where God will bring him back, and that's one of his promises. Uh, but he's on Mount Sinai. He sees a bush that's burning. It's not being consumed, you know, which is what's different. Undoubtedly, he has seen fires before, uh, but this one was different because the bush was not being consumed. And so Moses approaches it to find out what's going on, and that's where he has this 
conversation with God. God tells him to take his shoes off. Uh, and then he tells him, I've been paying attention to what's going on in Egypt. I've been hearing the cries of my people. And it's time for you to go back and, and get them. And Moses quite clearly is afraid. Uh, God is instructing him to go back and, and, and get the Israelites to understand him and know that he is their, uh, their leader being sent by God. And he says, they're not going to, how are they even going to know that somebody sent me or who sent me? And he's told to tell them that the I am sent me. That means God, obviously, because the rest of us uh, have a beginning and an ending, but saying that God is the I am is saying that God is always existent, existing, which by the way, uh, is one of the cases, if you skip over the New Testament, where Jesus claims to be God. Some people believe that Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, when Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, and the King James says I am he, but that he is italicized, meaning the translators provided that word. So the text literally says, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And so he's connecting back to what's happening here in Exodus chapters 3 and 4 with this burning bush. And that is that the Israelites need to know that God is the one that is sending Moses back. Now, as we get into chapter 4, uh, what we're going to get into is, the again, a part that most people are familiar with, which is uh, the excuses of Moses and then several events that happened in preparation for him to return to Egypt. Now, before we start reading, I've been monopolizing, so if Rich wants to communicate here something, then we'll move from there. No, I think it's um, we're pretty much most people are familiar with chapter three in this account where um, Moses comes before God and there's this bush that is burning, but it's not. And God concludes that he is a definite being. And you see Moses start to take these steps back. Whereas if Moses, we read about earlier, was ready to lead this rebellion against Egypt, now that he is here to actually do it, he's a little more hesitant. And that's what's leading us into chapter 4. Yeah, he's not quite as bold as he was at 40 years old now that he's 80. Yeah, okay. All right, well, let's start reading. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as usual, if you're if you're not a member of Stuart, you may not be aware of this or you wouldn't be aware of this, but I teach all of my classes from the New King James Version, and so that's what I'll be reading from today. Exodus 4, beginning in verse 1. Uh, then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Now, one of the things I try to highlight uh, when I teach my classes, I try to uh, help us to see clues or even questions that we need to ask that, that help us to keep everything in its context and to know, uh, you know more deeply what we're dealing with. And, and these are usually overlooked words. Like occasionally I'll talk about the word for. If a verse starts with the word for, that's a connecting word. And so that means there's a thought that is continuing. Uh, if a verse begins with the word but, that's a contrasting word. And so something is changing in the text. And I, as I start there in verse one, the question I would have is the they. You know, when he says, but, but suppose they will not believe me. Well, in order to understand what's happening here, you've got to figure out who the they is. And to get that, you go back into chapter 3, and the point that he's making here is that I'm sending you back to Israel. We talk about God sending Moses back to Pharaoh, and that does happen. But Moses cannot lead the Israelites out of captivity unless they're willing to follow him. And so verse 1 is talking about the fact that his question is, suppose I go back and the Israelites don't believe me, which they didn't 40 years earlier, right? He said, he said 40 years to, uh, 
to dwell on the fact that, you know what, he's, he's not one of them anymore. And as far as they're concerned, he, maybe he wasn't ever one of them. Yeah, I mean, um, when you read about Moses, he's definitely not a first-round draft pick of who you want to lead your nation. He can't prove his Hebrew heritage. He can't prove Egyptian heritage. Really, he can't prove what he is. And his previous actions, either you look at him and he lived this beautiful life of luxury, or you look at him like he's a murderer. So before he can prove himself to Pharaoh, which seems to be what he thinks will be the easier task of these two, God is telling him he has to prove himself to the people he wants to save. That's weird that standing before Pharaoh would be easier too, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All right, verse 2. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So he says, okay, Moses said, well, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe that you sent me. And God says, okay, I've got an idea for you. What are you holding? And of course, Moses knows what he's holding. This is just a shepherd's rod that would have been uh, one of the implements of his job on a daily basis. Uh, it would be a protective tool uh, to keep his sheep safe. It would be something that would be used to rescue them should they get in trouble. Uh, it would be a security in walking in terrain that maybe would be quite challenging. But the bottom line is, no matter how effective it is as a tool, it's nothing more than a stick. It's always been a stick. It probably is a stick that he has carried with him for a very long time. And so he knows exactly how limited it is and how... Uh, extensively it works and so God basically just says to him you know acknowledge what this is in your hand which is a worthless piece of wood beyond the capabilities that he has been using it and he says now throw that thing on the ground which by the way I would have supposed that over the years of shepherding there have been times that maybe he had stumbled or so he dropped it before right I, I don't suppose this is the first time this stick has ever been on the ground but he throws it on the ground and it becomes a snake well that doesn't happen in everyday life and quite frankly, I see him flee from it, and, uh, you know, I get that. I understand that part, because if that happens, I'm going to run too. Uh, but the part that I have a struggle with is when God tells him to reach out and grab that stick again, I'm going to have a problem with that. Uh, it, it, <laughs> once it becomes a snake, uh, grabbing it by the tail is not actually something that I would find incredibly pleasant uh, of a, you know, a thought process. But, but he does it which tells me that Moses, uh, in awe of what he is seeing between this bush and now this stick becoming a snake, has started to realize whether Israel will believe him or not, he is getting an understanding that, that this is God. <coughs> yeah, I think this also might be important that Moses isn't just proving himself to the Israelites, he isn't just proving himself to the Egyptians. Moses is proving himself to himself. Like right. When we read about Moses... From the beginning of his story to the end, one thing he struggles with is like self-esteem. He never thinks that he is this capable character to be worthy of leading God's people. And this is an experience where God is showing him that you're not, but when I'm here with you, you are. Yeah, he's going to have to have a lot of confidence, not only to stand before Israel, but to ultimately stand in front of Pharaoh and, and present these plagues as well. And he doesn't have that, does he? All right, verse uh, 6. Furthermore, by the way, that's one of those connecting words. Uh, 
meaning he's continuing along with a train of thought. This is the answer to the question is, what if they won't believe me? And God says, well, I'm going to give you some help. The first one is, <coughs> I've got coughs now. <coughs> I've not got coronavirus, by the way. I've just got coughed up. But he said, uh, the first one is, look at this stick, and it becomes a snake. Now here's another sign. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored uh, like his other flesh. Let's, let's stop there just a second. So second sign. And that is this disease that, that, you know, disastrous type of disease. And you know the accounts throughout the Old Testament, if you remember, uh, and even during the uh, earthly ministry of Jesus, of people that were affected by this disease. And there were tremendous restrictions that would be placed on them as God gave Israel the law uh, later on in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai. Uh, but it was a highly contagious disease that resulted in significant uh, uh, deformation of you know your existence uh, and really wasn't something that they could fix and so it, that's why it was so impressive when in the account of Naaman when Naaman has leprosy and he's told to go down the dip in Jordan dip in the Jordan River seven times and that's why it's such an in, incredible account to have him healed after that seven times and that's why when you get to the New Testament we're told that there were a lot of lepers during Naaman's day and they were not healed uh, so it wasn't that it was magic water or something. It was that he did what God through the prophet had told him to do. So in this account, the second sign is that Moses puts his hand inside of his garment and he pulls it out and it, it has changed and it has visibly changed, which means it would have been deformed uh, and it would have shown significant progression of a disease uh, that is highly contagious. I would consider this uh, just like the snake, you know, this is not just a magic trick where he pulls it out and, oh, look, great, my hand has changed. This would be something very fearful. Uh, as he would see this and as the people would see this, he would be incredibly afraid. Uh, but then when he puts it back in and pulls it out, it's, it's all healed. So I think what God's telling him is God can make something happen and God can stop something from happening. And he's trying to give, as Rich has already pointed out, not only Israel that understanding, but Moses that understanding that God's going to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. I also find it interesting that the first miracle that he um, demonstrates with Moses is that God can create life out of nothing. A dead stick. A dead stick. And then he takes him to this other miracle where he puts his hand in his cloak and he comes out and he's pretty much given a both social and literal death sentence. And God is telling them that he can also control both life and death. That these two miracles are signs of what God's hand has, what he has power in. All right, let's go back to the text, verses 8 and 9. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, again, the they is Israel, right? He's being sent to Israel, and he says, they may not believe me, and so God gives him these signs. It will be, if they don't, do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Now, I think this is a, I mean, not that a, there's no major miracles and minor miracles, but, uh, you know, the significance of the first two are, I think, more than the third, only from the perspective of 
you know, we're not going to read a whole lot about this again. <laughs> you know, we just know what he was told to do, and we don't read about this third one again. Uh, but they're very familiar with this river. They are very familiar with its life-giving properties. Uh, they lived in Goshen. When they moved into Goshen, it was the most prosperous part of the land of Egypt. And the primary reason for that was because this river kind of split into its tributaries in that area. And so it was a very well-watered area. So they understand this river. And as he's pulling out this water, or told to pull it out, and pour it out of the land, it becomes blood. The significance of that is death. You know, this is, this is death. Uh, and, and actually, the death that it is connecting to, obviously, is the fact that God has said, you know, put into plan already this place that would ultimately be a redemption of mankind, which would happen through death and the providing of blood, but ultimately would be Jesus the Christ. Yeah, I mean, again, I think this is God just demonstrating his control over both life and death and his responsibility and everything that happens. And as we keep reading, he kind of elaborates on that a little bit more. Yeah, that, this is where we start getting to what Rich was talking about a moment ago with the, uh, the kind of self-judgment, self-esteem issues of Moses, because, you know, all of us at times have had situations we've been in where we've had opportunities that we felt qualified for and we felt capable of, and maybe we'd even been anticipating them. But we've also all been uh, in places where we have been given opportunities or doors have opened before us to do jobs that we didn't feel ready for. Uh, and maybe we didn't even want those jobs. Uh, interesting, interesting thing about Moses is, at least according to that sermon that Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, back when he was 40 years old, he seems to have wanted the job. Uh, he seems to believe he was ready for the job, prepared for whatever was coming, and he was, he was capable and he was going to do it right now, and everything fell apart. So now 40 years later, we see him being put in a position where he's going to fulfill what he thought he was going to do at 40 years old, and now at 80 years old, he no longer believes he's capable. So let's start in verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now stop there just a second. Let's consider his argument first before we talk about God's answer. Uh you ever had a time where you were talking to somebody about the Bible or really about any topic and you were trying to instruct them on what you thought or what you believed and the discussion occurred and then it was over and then later on you thought to yourself, oh, I wish I'd have said this or I wish I'd have been, you had a home Bible study with somebody and later on you said, oh, I wish I'd have done it this way and I, I should have been better at this. You know, you, you, you question what you should have said because it's always easier to think about it after the fact, right? Okay, that's kind of what I see in Moses here is God now says, go back, and he says, look, uh, I tried this, and they didn't listen to me. So he's, all these years he's thought, evidently, what should I have said? What should I have done? What could have happened to, to cause the end result to be different when I was 40 years old, and it didn't work? And by the way, out here in the wilderness talking to a bunch of sheep, I haven't gotten better at public presentation. So you know, I'm going to show up and they're going to say, no, that's not the kind of leader we want. We want a charismatic leader, somebody with really good speech capabilities that can motivate us and get us going. He basically says, I'm not that guy. I mean, and this might be something that the Israelites told to him in the past when he attempted this maybe. the first time around, that maybe this all stems from that experience, or maybe this is just a self-hatred he built up in himself after failing the first time around and 
pretty much exiling himself from his own people. Right? But, but the answer to that is, uh, you know, God doesn't give you an opportunity that you don't have the talent to fulfill. All right? Look at the answer, verse 11. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So basically God just tells him, look, uh, I'm the one that made you. I'm the one, I know all of your abilities. I know all of your weaknesses. And by the way, I'm the one that's sending you, which means if I'm going to send you, I have the capability of doing the job. Now, I believe that God had the capability of doing the job whether Moses goes or not. He could have used somebody else. Remember when in the first century when uh, everybody's claiming that we're good with God because we can trace our genealogy back to Abraham and God says, look, I could have made descendants of Abraham out of the rocks, right? I don't, I don't need you. I'm using you or would like to use you if you'll let me. But if God tells you, you know, in this text, he tells Moses, hey, I can do this. When Moses says, hey, I can't do this, God says, well, I, I know you. I know what you're capable of, and I know what I'm capable of, and I wouldn't give you the job if you couldn't do it. I like seeing that um, Moses and God kind of have a moment representative of what we read about in Job, where Job questions God, and God pretty much tells him, who are you to ask this? I know what I can do. I know what you can do. And everything here is because I said it to be. And God and Moses have the same exact situation. And pretty much it ends the same way with, I don't ask twice. Yeah, good point. Okay, now, now things change here. And I find this interesting. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I don't remember how old I was, but I was visiting uh, one weekend, Fried Hardeman University, and they were having some kind of a big event and there was a, a music group or a singing group a vocal group of uh, several guys i don't know whether it's a quartet or a quintet or whatever it was uh, but they were singing and everybody was in this room and they were putting on a, a presentation or a show or whatever and one of the songs they sang and i don't know that i ever heard this song but that one time that night uh, but it had an impact on me and the song was about excuses uh, and it just kept repeating excuses excuses you hear them every day the devil will provide them if from church you'll stay away. And the idea behind the song is, look, if you're looking for an excuse to stay away from God, you'll find one, right? And, and it's all it is, just excuses. Well, Moses has been offering excuses. I don't know who you are. I'm not prepared for this. They may not listen to me. I'm not good enough at speaking. But those are all just, they're, they're just excuses. They're just his attempt to get out of doing this job. Now his real attitude comes out in verse 13 listen to this but he says oh my lord please send by the hand of whomever else you'll send just give somebody else the job i just don't want to do it see god answered every excuse he had all these excuses god answered them and he just basically says i just don't want to do the job that's never us is it we don't ever have a situation where you know, we've got an opportunity to do something we don't, and it's not because we're not capable. It's not because we don't have the time. It's just because we don't want to do it. And that's where Moses is. And I think this says a whole lot, again, as Rich was talking about a while ago, it says a whole lot about where he is in his own self-confidence. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, a, it's amazing this transformation we see with Moses that when he was younger, he was like, I am the man, I'm ready to do this. And at some point in time, something happened where 
Moses is literally talking to God, the creator of the universe, and he runs out of excuses and he just says, send anyone else but me. As long as it's not me, it'll be okay. And it's just weird to think that this is the same person we read about a couple chapters ago who is ready to take on the Egyptian army by force with a rock. I just turned the fan on because it's <laughs> hot in here. And so now it may get, I don't know if it's loud on the microphone or not. If you start hearing noise, that may be what it is. Uh, but, you know, we serve obviously a very loving and very patient God. But at the same time, uh, God's patience does end, right? And so he's patiently tried to bring Moses along here. And Moses finally gets a place where he reveals his true attitude, which is, uh, you know, just send somebody else. I just don't want to go. And this is where God gets angry in verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you will, will, shall do the sign. So basically God just says, I'm going to send somebody else, but I'm going to send you. Uh, you're going to go, and I'm, I'm going to bring Aaron out, which, by the way, you realize that when Moses fled from Egypt for his life at 40 years old, Aaron didn't flee. Aaron's still in the land of Egypt. He has still now for 40 years been a slave. And uh, somehow God's saying, I'm going to get him out of there. I'm going to help him escape from Egypt. And you would think, by the way, if you were a servant or a slave in this land and you escaped, you're not going to want to go back either, right? So as Moses said, he's not going to go back. I would have to believe that there's got to be something in Aaron that would make him be hesitant to go back as well. But God says, no, that's not going to be the case. Aaron's going to come out here, and I'm not going to put him in charge. You know, I'm not going to replace you with him. You're going to speak for me to Aaron, and then Aaron's going to speak for me and for you to Israel. And when that happens, uh, I'm going to accomplish what, what I'm telling you I'm going to accomplish, and that's get the confidence of the people. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have anything to add other than Again, Moses is going to have to not only convince himself, not only convince Israelite people, not only convince Pharaoh, but he's probably going to have to do some convincing to Aaron. Yeah, he's added somebody else to work on, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, verse uh, 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law. Again, Jethro is the priest of Midian, which means he knows God. Uh, he's not under the law. There's no law that exists at this point, at least not... The, the law as we know it from Exodus chapter 20 and following, that old covenant, uh, there is a patriarchal system in place, and God has provided that to his people. And Jethro, his father-in-law, is evidently a priest working under that patriarchal system. And so Moses has been serving under him. And so he goes to him and he says, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, so he's still there around Jethro, go, return to Egypt, for all the men are dead who sought your life. And then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Now, I want to, I want to keep us in a, I want to make sure we understand a timeline here. 
when we read that, what we read is Moses went back, if we're not careful, Moses went back to Jethro in Midian and he said, uh, you know, let me go back to Egypt. I'm going to check on my people. I want to take care of them. Uh, and then God tells him to go and then he just jumps on the donkeys and there he is already there. And that's not what we're reading about here. We're reading about the beginning of a journey. There's a lot of time that's happening in this. In fact, in just a moment, we're going to find out that this is where actually where Aaron meets him, which means Aaron has to get out of the way to, uh, to Midian where Moses is before Moses leaves for this journey. Now, maybe it's the case that Aaron, you know, just like Philip and the eunuch, Philip had to leave where he was before the eunuch left Jerusalem in order for them to meet. Maybe it's the case that Aaron is close already. Don't know how much time has passed, but what I do know is Moses is not in Egypt. He is near Jethro, near Midian, and Aaron's going to show up. And basically what we've been told is he has been told by God to begin this journey back, and he has at least gained enough faith in God at this point to start walking. And so he's going to begin this journey together. But there's something missing. Do you want to add anything before I go to what's missing? Well, I think it's interesting that um, Moses calls it God's staff. Like that this is yeah. the staff of God now. It changed, didn't it? It changed. Like this is a staff that Moses probably has been using for the past 40-something years to take care of these sheep in the wilderness. And now that he's had this encounter, it no longer belongs to him. Yeah, that's a good point because it had been his before that bush, right? Yeah. All right, 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now these signs are different. You know, these signs are different. These are what we would end up calling the ten plagues. And they're going to come out more clearly in a minute. But I want you to think about the difference in what was said. Way back in the beginning of the chapter, whenever God was telling him to go back to Israel and how to convince Israel, because Moses is questioning, he said, I'm going to give you these signs, and they're going to believe because of these signs, right? Now he tells, I want you to go back, and I want you to use that same stick, and I'm going to give you some other, other signs to do before Pharaoh, but he's not going to believe. He's not going to listen. Now, you know, Moses is afraid of standing before Israel and them not listening, and God just tells him up front, Moses not going to listen. Uh, he's going to be hard-hearted. He's going to be stubborn. In this account, this part of the account, God says, I'm going to make his heart hard. I don't want you to get the idea from that that that's some kind of a, a direct action that God puts on him so that Pharaoh cannot respond. That's not what it is uh, because on, uh, there are actually multiple ways that, Moses, that Pharaoh's heart is told to be, that we're told that his heart is hardened. We're told that Moses hardened it. Well, he didn't do it in some direct way apart from Pharaoh's will, did he? Uh, and we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own hearts, and we're told that the magicians hardened his heart. And so what we're reading here is not a direct action, but a response of Pharaoh to what God is doing through Moses. He's basically, God is basically telling Moses here, you go back and you do these signs before Pharaoh, but you got to know that is a stubborn man. He is not going to listen to you. He's not going to listen to me. And it's going to go all the way. He tells him the ending point here. It's going to go all the way and keep going until it gets to the place where Pharaoh's son has been killed. Pharaoh took my son. I'm going to take Pharaoh's son. I also think it's interesting with the idea of hardening of the heart. When you read through the um, ten plagues, after the first five were told that, 
Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We're told that this is something he did to himself. And after the first five, we have this break where Pharaoh's uh, councilmen, the people who um, work under him, they pretty much think he's gone mad because he hasn't given up yet. That they're starting to worry that maybe Pharaoh's being a little stubborn and he's making a mistake. And at that point is where we start seeing the language transition to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I don't think that's saying that God is doing this directly, but God is using Pharaoh's own evil against him at this point. Yeah. That the first five five were Pharaoh doing this to himself, but by the end, God is going to take that stubbornness and use it to punish him. Yeah. Okay, now there's a little bit of a shift here. There's an inserted event that occurs. And before we read it, uh, it is a difficult section. I'm not going to try to make you believe that I've got everything figured out and anybody who disagrees with me is, you know, just wrong. I think there's some room left here for interpretation. And I think that there is some speculation in what I'm going to present to you as I read it. But before we read it, I want to say this. Uh, You know, there are times that we make decisions that we're going to do things and we don't stop and consider uh, that we're doing it right. Uh, I think we act, the word I would use is we act impetuously. And I see that, you know, when we get to the New Testament, I see that kind of in Peter's character. He's the one that uh, after the events on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they're going down and the text tells us they don't know what to say, well, Peter's the one that says, hey, let's build these altars for all three of you. Why? Because he didn't know what else to say. So he acted impetuously. Uh, Peter's the one, and we, we, we compliment his faith. He's the one in the storm that gets out of the boat and wa- actually walks on the water with Jesus. But then when he gets out there a little ways and he sees the winds and the waves, he becomes afraid. And so what, he's, what happens is he acts in such a way that he acts before he considers his actions. Uh, and I think that's what Moses, Moses had reached this place now where God said, you got to go back. Uh, go back to Egypt. I want you to save my people or lead them out. And Moses says, all right, I'm going to go. But he forgot something. He forgot something. Let's read 24 through 26. It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you're a husband of blood to me. And so he let him go. Then she said, You're a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now, there's a lot that I kind of want to bring out here. Uh, I want to start with this. You know, Abraham was the one that was given this covenant, if you will, of circumcision from God, right? God made the promises, said, I want you to follow me, and I'll show you this land. But one of the things that I want from you is on the eighth day after any male is born, I want him to be circumcised. So that started with Abraham, and all of his descendants and all those who were in his household were supposed to continue this uh, because of what God had asked of them. So that continued evidently into Egypt. But as Moses has gone out of the wilderness, something has happened. And I do want to highlight here that he has two sons, right? And we've read only about one of them here. Now, though it, it obviously if neither of them are circumcised, then there's two that's going to happen in this account. And we're only reading about one, which tells us that most likely the one who was would be the oldest. Because as he leaves Egypt and this first one is born, he still has a close enough connection to who who he has been and what he has been taught that he continues. But time passes, and evidently by the second son, well, he's he's not as close to God anymore. And the application of that, that happens to us, you know? Uh, You start to fall away from faithfulness to God. You start to fall away from spending time meditating on his word on your own. 
And over time, you may think, well, I don't really change. But over time, more and more things change. You just don't notice them as much because you've gotten further and further away. You want to add anything before I go into my next part of that? Um, I just think it's interesting to note that the 40 years or however many years passed since he had the second son, God never took it up with him that this was a problem, that he wasn't circumcised. But now that Moses is going to represent God before the Israelites, before the Egyptian people, God wants him to be holy, righteous, justice, law-abiding person. He's not one of the Israelites if he hasn't followed that covenant. Yeah. So if he shows up with a son that is not one of the Israelites, then the people are not going to follow him. They're not going to relate to him. Okay, the second thing I want to bring up here, and I think that most people read this and they consider it uh, a rebuke from Zipporah, his wife, when she says, uh, when she takes this flesh from her son and she throws it at Moses' feet and she calls him a bridegroom. Uh, some translations call it the bridegroom. Uh, some call it the husband of blood. I don't see that as a criticism. What I see that is a redemption. Uh, you know, her husband has now, whatever it is, whether it's some kind of plague or sickness or whatever is happening, uh, by God's hand to kill Moses because he hasn't done, uh, he hadn't stopped and counted the cost. He hadn't stopped to make sure everything was in place before he starts this journey. And so he's about to die. And Zipporah buys his life back with the blood of her son. And I find that uh, somewhat parallel with Genesis 3.15, with this seed of woman, singular seed of woman, and I've talked about it in a sermon recently, that you know, woman does not have seed. Woman has egg, man has seed, but there would be one who would come by seed of woman. That is a prophecy about a virgin birth that Isaiah would clarify a little bit later. And then in Matthew, Matthew would kind of point to where that is fulfilled. Well, we all know that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the one who the woman, the seed of woman who uh, came into this world by the virgin birth, and it would be his blood would ultimately be shed to uh, to redeem mankind. And so this is kind of a picture, if you will, of what's coming with uh, the coming of the Messiah. Yeah, and I think although it's a little strange to us, this idea of blood covenant, circumcision in itself originally was a blood covenant between man and God. So it only seems appropriate that this blood covenant would between Moses and God would be what would save him. Yeah. Okay, verse 27. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. And so Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Now we stop real quickly. I don't know that this is all, you know, I think this is more of a summary. Uh, I don't know when God told Aaron to leave Egypt to go meet Moses, which, by the way, would have been a significant message to Aaron himself because he hasn't seen his brother in 40 years. So uh, when God tells him to go, he escapes from Egypt and he heads out. I don't know when. I don't know how it relates to his sickness here. Maybe his sickness was slow in recovery. Maybe it happens right at the same time. It doesn't really matter. What matters is God brought them together in this location, They've been apart for 40 years, and now they have safely journeyed back into Egypt, and they have called together the Israelite people. All right, verse 29, or 30, rather. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses, and then he did the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. 
The signs worked exactly like uh, God told him it would. The, the people that are the descendants of Abraham believed that God sent Moses, believed that Moses was their leader, believed that Aaron was his spokesperson, and as a result of that, they are praising God because he heard their cries. That's how this all started. At the bush, God told Moses, look, I have heard the cries of my people in their despair. It's time to go rescue them. And so now, as Moses and Aaron show up, the people respond. They, they recognize that God has now sent this person in answer to their prayers, and they worship him. I think we always have this criticism of like the Israelite as a people group who overall, they're always turning their back to God or they're always doing something wrong. But really, they're always looking for what the next step is. Even up until the coming of Christ, they are looking for whatever God's going to do next in their life. So for them to see Moses and Aaron perform these great signs, that would have been a fulfillment of what they had been told by their parents and their parents' parents. And everybody who had told them something for the past 400 years, this would have been a fulfillment of some sort of prophecy. All those generations, from the time Jacob said, God, God told Jacob, I'll bring you back, all those generations yeah. done the same thing. Yeah. And they've still got the bones of Joseph there to remind them. Yeah, good point. Okay. Uh, we're not going to do this class on Sundays. We'll do it every Wednesday. So next Wednesday night, we'll be in Exodus chapter 5. You'll have, you've got a whole week to uh, prepare your thoughts on Exodus 5 to join us and study next Wednesday night. And uh, Lord willing, everything will work the same way. Rich and I will do this together while we're in this place. If something happens that prevents that, uh, if one of us gets sick, the other one will keep going. And we'll, we'll make it through this study together. But let's, let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be together to study your word, and we are so thankful for these accounts uh, that you have recorded for us and preserved for us that help us to see what it means to walk by faith and help us to have that kind of confidence in our life that we can serve you and walk with you even in our limitations, even in our fears and our struggles. Help us to recognize your power. Help us always, Father, to trust in you and not in ourselves. Forgive us where we fail you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.